0: Um, we're going to be jumping back into looking at these threefold offices of Christ, the office of prophet, priest, and king. Now, we spent before, um, I guess before, what's the September? So, I guess before August, we had finished up looking at the prophetic office of Christ. And uh, we saw that mankind had been entrusted with the uh, Word of God. They intentionally rejected the word of God, followed their own way of thinking. And so as a result of that, there was a need for God to respond or or for God to reveal himself. And so he determined to do that through prophets. And we looked at uh, the prophetic office in the Old Testament, what was required of the prophets, how they were messengers for God. And, of course, we saw in every prophet before Christ, there were failures. There were failures in the prophets of Israel. But Christ came as the Word in flesh. He came to fulfill that prophetic office. He Himself spoke through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We saw that prophecy came. No prophecy came by man's will, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Spirit. Jesus Christ Himself did not begin His public teaching ministry until... He received the Spirit from God, and he began that ministry. And then we saw how that ministry now, as we are united to Christ by faith... And we talked about how we enjoy all the glories that Christ has as a result of that. Well, we also have a responsibility to also do these offices, not obviously to the extent that Christ does, but they're worked out within us. And so we are called to speak to each other to in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms, that we have a call to be prophets ourselves, not in the sense that we're receiving direct revelation from God, but in the sense that we're called to point people to God's revelation, which is found in His Word. Well, tonight, we're going to begin looking at the priestly office. The priestly office. Now, when we talk about these these roles, prophet, priest, and king, I think generally we have an idea of what the prophetic office involves, and we have some idea of what the kingly office involves, but I feel of, of these three offices that are talked about, about who Christ is, it is the priestly office that I think sometimes isn't given as much emphasis. It's not, it's not highlighted in such a way that it should be. Um, but yet it is an essential office of Christ. Um, all of these offices are essential. If Christ did not come to bring the Word of God, we would have no idea. We would not be given Uh, the information needed to know God. If Christ did not come as king, there would be no hope over the evil kings that we face and the evil governments of this world. And so it is also true that if Christ were not fulfilling perfectly this priestly office, there would be no hope for our acceptance before the Father. It's interesting even to tie in with what we looked at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ suffered for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that, and this is important, He, Christ, might bring us where? To God. And that is the very essence of what it means to be a priest. A priest is someone who goes on behalf of someone else and stands before God, interceding for them. And this is the role that God has given to Christ to perfectly fulfill. And so we're going to be looking at, uh, I don't have one particular passage for us, we're going to be looking and jumping around from a, a bunch of different passages this evening as we look at and begin delving into this priestly office. And we're going to begin by looking at God's design from creation, God's design from creation. Um, when we walk through this information and when we, once we get probably several weeks or months down the road and we start talking about how we today live out this priestly office, um, what we're recognizing there is that Christ is restoring us to a state that we had originally been created for. And so we're going to go back and look in Genesis chapter 1 and we're going to see how we were created to be priests to God. And then we're going to see what happened to uh, mar that ability within us. And then we're going to launch in and it shows us the necessity for Christ. But before we go any further, let's seek God's face again in prayer. Father, Lord, we come into your presence today knowing that we have no right to be there, but also knowing that in Christ we are to come boldly before your throne. That we are called to seek before the throne of grace, your face, so that we can find the help we need and the grace necessary for every moment in our lives. Father, now as, as we open your word, as we begin looking at this priestly office, we confess that we need your grace again. Father, we need your grace to illuminate to us the wonderful truths of the priestly office that Christ fulfills, how we were designed for that office, and then to be warned at the consequences of sin and our desire to live apart from Your face and the the devastating consequences that that brings. Father, work in our midst as only You can. Pour out Your grace through Your Spirit this evening. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. So when God created all things, all right, He created the, the light, He created the stars, He created the, the earth, He created the planets, He created the waters, he created, um, he created the plants and animals, and then He created man. And what was it about man that separated man from every other part of creation? Man was created in the image of God. When God created mankind, he created them in his image, bearing his likeness. And we can see this in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. You know, God created, said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so he made man, male and female, he created them after his image. And this set humanity apart from all of creation. So what is it that makes us different from the plants? What is it that makes us different from the animals? What is it that makes us different from the seas and the light and the stars? It is the fact that we uniquely, from all else of creation, we uniquely bear the image of God. Now, this is in in certain movements today today there is this desire to sort of break down that differentiation and to to lump mankind in with the rest of creation. But we are different. We are fundamentally different. And that difference is seen in the image of God that is placed within us. It was interesting. I was uh, talking with someone recently, and they asked, well, what is the image of God? What is that? So let me ask you, what's the image of God? And then give me a biblical evidence that says this is exactly what the image of God is. I say that facetiously because you won't find it. We have hints. There are certain things in Scripture that that point us uh, to different things that may be involved in that. The exercise of will, um, emotions perhaps, um, the idea of a consciousness. Some of those things, a a moral compass, uh, those type of things are perhaps involved there. And a lot of those things, there's some biblical support for it, but they're ultimately they're just sort of extrapolations of logical conclusions. But they're not specifically what's said in the Scripture. Humanity is set apart from all creation because we bear the image of God. In fact, we see this. We're given dominion over and charged with the care of the rest of of creation. And in fact, this sort of points to that kingly role that humanity is given. We see Genesis one twenty eight. God blesses Adam and Eve, and He says to them, "...be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over..." "...and then He speaks about creation, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth." And so, from one perspective, we can see that the image of God involves some sense of dominion. It also invo- involves care. God takes Adam, He takes the man in Genesis 2.15, and He puts him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, let me, I'm going really, to really stretch how much you were paying attention like, I don't know, a year ago when we first started this study. Does anyone, anyone note or remember anything special about this verse regarding the priestly role? I'm, I'm, really, I'm, really, I'm really pulling you to, to think back. Well, see, that's why I'm glad I have a long list of notes that I can go back and see. So I can sort of have a cheat sheet with it. So those words, to work it and to keep it. Those are going to become important words for us when we understand the priestly rule. So we'll, so just keep that, pin, put a pin in that, keep it in the back of your mind, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But again, the image of God is seen in the fact that we're given dominion. But there's also one other aspect, and that is that we alone are created to relate to God. We alone are able to relate to God. Now, with the rest of creation, that relationship that... Because God has a relationship with everything that He's created. That relationship that He has with everything else is one way. God is the one who is blessing. God is the one who is caring. God is the one who is, who is moving. And it's all God-focused from the perspective of Him moving. But humanity... Adam and Eve, are made in His image so that we can relate back to God. In fact, and we don't have the time to look through all the different passages that, that point this out, but just even in the, in the beginning of creation, God's words of blessing, His dialogue with mankind, is significantly different than the rest of His dialogue with creation. Um, And so if we're to answer, what is the image of God? Again, there are many hints that can be given in Scripture. There are many different aspects of humanity that we can point to. But I think if we boil it all down, fundamentally, the image of God in man means that we are able to relate to Him. We are like Him in some respect. That's the idea of being made in His likeness. And so of all creation, we are the only ones who are able to relate to him. Well, how do we see this working its way out? Well, we see it in the garden and God's presence, particularly in the garden. Now, we're going to we're we're jump to a, a several different passages, three, three major different passages, because I'm going to make a statement, and you're going to think, huh, but I want you to see this, all right? The Garden of Eden itself was a place where God was meant to relate with mankind through His presence and His blessings. So mankind was to have this relationship with God primarily in the garden. Now, this is, this is where we see something really interesting. This foreshadowed the tabernacle and the temple. Now... The tabernacle and the temple. What was it that made the tabernacle and the temple important? What, what, was the, what was the main thing about the tabernacle and the temple? That's where God was. Now, we can already, know, knowing what we know about the Bible, knowing what we know about the Old Testament, we can already see that who was it that got to go into the tabernacle and the temple? The priests. And yet what we find is that the Garden of Eden... And I don't even know that the, the term "foreshadow" isn't probably the correct term, because um, it, it's what we were made for. But rather, what we find is the tabernacle and the temple is actually a an echo, if you will, of the Garden of Eden. You say, "Really? Prove it." Well, I will, and we'll look at three different passages in Scripture. The first is in Psalm chapter forty-six. Psalm 46, verses 4 through 7, speaks of how a river brings gladness to God's people because it flows in and from, and this is important, the presence of God. Now, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, there were how many rivers in the Garden of Eden? Three different rivers. And those rivers brought sustenance to the ground. that brought sustenance to the plants. It brought water. And it was a, a, a visible, physical evidence of the blessing of God's presence. Look at what's said in Psalm 46, 4-7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So when we say habitation, what does that mean? It's the living place. It's where God's presence dwells. And the psalmist is likening this to a garden with a river running through it. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. And so the conclusion of this section of Psalm 46 is... The Lord of hosts is what? With us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is a sense in which God's presence becomes the hope for God's people as He dwells with them in His holy habitation. In fact, um, I don't have it up on the slides, but if you, want, if you have your Bibles you want to take them and just turn quickly with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm, so I've heard it said that Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2, they form the great pillars of the entrance into the Psalter. And It's interesting how Psalm 1 is described, or how what Psalm 1 describes. It talks about the blessed man. And of course, in verse 1 of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but rather his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law he meditates day and night. Now notice what that does. He is like a what? A tree. And where is that tree planted? It's planted by what? Streams of water. We have another image like a garden with a rich, uh, healthful flow of water so that the tree yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. And he compares this to the wicked. What do the wicked do? They shy away from the garden of God's presence. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And so the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. And then if we look at what's said here in Psalm 46, there's ta- he talks about the nations raging. What does that sound like? Psalm two. Look at Psalm two verse one. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plod in vain? Why do they seek to cast off the bonds of, of the Lord and His anointed? As it says in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords. And of course, God is in heaven, and as, as puny mankind says we're going to rebel against God, what is God doing? He's laughing. He'll hold them in derision. He'll speak to them in His wrath. He'll terrify them in His fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them like a potter's vessel. So what is the, what is the conclusion then? What's the application? Listen, kings, be wise. Rulers of the earth, Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. And then here is where we see that priestly idea brought into play. What are we to do with the Son? We are to kiss the Son. To kiss the Son, to pay homage to the Son, means that we must come into His presence. If we do not, He will be angry with us and will perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled, and then there is blessing to those who take refuge in Him. This is exactly what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 46. The, God, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so there is this, this idea of the river, the tree growing in a garden that speaks to the presence of God. So Psalm 46 speaks of that. But it becomes even more clear in Ezekiel chapter 47. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel 47, I'm going to put up just a a few passages on the screen, just a few verses from Ezekiel on on the screen, but I want to read the entire passage. Ezekiel chapter 47. Verses 1 through 12. He says, so the, the heading that I have here in my Bible, it speaks of water flowing from the temple. So this is a vision that Ezekiel is having of the temple of God. And again, the temple, what, what's significant about the temple? It's where who dwells. It's where God dwells. It's the presence of God. Notice what he speaks about this temple. Then he brought me to the back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from behold the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, water was trickling out on the south side. So you have this vision. Ezekiel sees the river in the temple. It's coming. The source is in the temple. And again, that means that it sources from who? God himself. The angel takes him outside and brings him around and says, Okay, here's the east gate. And here's this river that's flowing. Verse 3, Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. Then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? So there's, there's a, an interesting sort of crescendo of the overflow of God's blessing. All right? It's not just, a, it's, he talks about it, first of all, as it being a trickle. And then he talks about it being ankle deep. Then he talks about it being knee deep. Then it's then it's waist-deep, and then finally it's a raging torrent of blessing that he can't even swim through. Right? So it, it, is a, it is a glorious picture of the provision that God's blessing brings, that God himself in his presence brings. He says again in verse 6, Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went, I saw on the bank of the river... Many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Ereba and enter the seas. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become what? Fresh. Now, what happens today when water flows into a sea? Does it become fresh? It becomes ruined. It, it goes into the oceans, and the salt in the oceans make it so that the water is no longer useful for giving life. And then notice what he says about this water. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become Fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Engelim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water um, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food, and their 'm sorry, their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing so this garden that is brought about through the river that flows from the temple wherein is the presence of God. It is a clear echo of what we see in the Garden of Eden. This flowing river flows from the temple bringing God's blessings. And so we've seen it in the the Psalms, we've seen it in Ezekiel, but there's one last place where we see clearly the clearest echo Of, and I shouldn't say echo, but restoration of the garden. Anyone want to guess what book of the Bible that's in? Revelation. Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it describes the restored Eden where rivers of blessing flow in the presence of God. Look at what's said in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal. Where does it it issue from? Where is its its water source? From the throne of God and of the Lamb. Flows through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, there is the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What does that sound like, what we just read in Ezekiel? No longer will there be anything accursed. And then here we see this restored Eden. What is it that makes Eden great? Because the throne of God and of the Lamb is in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord their God will be their light. And they Will reign how long? Forever and ever. This is what we were created for. This is the environment that Adam and Eve were put into a garden with blessings flowing from three rivers, a tree of life abundant that yielded its fruit, that grew. This is what the garden was. And so Adam, God created mankind in His image. He placed them in a garden where His presence would dwell with them. And so bearing the image of God, having the presence of God, they were automatically what we today call priests. Now, that term comes about because of what we're going to look at in just a few moments and what happened But naturally, that's what we're created for. We're created to know God, to stand face to face with Him. And in fact, the task that God gives to Adam and Eve in the garden was in fact a priestly task. So if you remember back in Genesis 2.15, God puts man in the garden and tells him to do two things. To what? Work it and to keep it, to work it and to keep it. And so just, just as a quick aside, work is something that existed before the fall of mankind. So I know we all say, oh, work is terrible. It's terrible now because of the curse, but it's not a bad thing in and of itself. That was another free sermonette. So this task that's given to Adam and Eve in the garden is a priestly task. Now those two terms, work and keep, those same Hebrew terms are used in Numbers 18 to describe the work of the Levites. Numbers 18, verses 5 through 6. And you shall keep guard, or they shall guard it or keep it. That's That's that last command that God had given to Adam and Eve. Keep guard over... And notice what they're keeping guard over, the sanctuary, the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. Again, the sanctuary, that is where God's presence dwells. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden where God's presence dwelt to guard it goes on, Behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, to the Israelites, given to the Lord to do the service or the work. It's the same word that we see in Genesis 2, 15, of the tent of meeting. So God created Adam and Eve in His image to relate directly to Him. We are created to know Him. We're created to spend time in His presence. We are created to be priests to God. That was God's original design. What happened? Sin. Which brings us secondly to see the fall. And what was the immediate consequence of sin? Sin. Adam and Eve were driven from the presence of the Lord. God's design was distorted and twisted in mankind's sin. In fact, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 quickly. Genesis chapter 3. Again, well-known passage, but I think it's important that we look at these things. We see, first of all, that this sin that distorted God's design for mankind, it was, first and foremost, a rejection of God's Word. There's the prophetic role being cast aside. Notice what he says. For, uh, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read through um, verse 6. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually, what? Say. All right, so he questions the prophetic role. What has God said? Did he actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And notice what the devil does. He's subtle. God's command was not that they couldn't eat of any of the trees, it was that they could only not eat of one tree. And Eve got that right. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees in, I'm sorry, but God, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And so there's where the first issue of these three roles comes into play with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve cast aside the truthfulness, the veracity of what God had said, and they believed a what? A lie. That's why Jesus says that the devil was a liar from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. That's that prophetic role. At this point, when Eve and Adam listen to the voice of the serpent, they're casting off their dependence on what God had revealed. You shall not surely die. And then this is where the devil attacks the priestly office. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They rejected God's word by believing the lie of the devil. They rejected dependence on God's presence. You'll be like God, you're not going to need to depend on Him anymore. And Eve sees this fruit and she is tempted in her heart and she says, you know what, I can live independently of the presence of God. I can live without Him through the wisdom I get through that fruit. And of course, we also know it was an abdication of the dominion role given to Adam and Eve. Rather than exercising dominion over creation the way God had designed they sought to exercise dominion by casting God off and turning from His presence. In Adam and Eve's sin, they determined that being like God in the way that the devil envisioned it was better than being dependent upon God. They didn't want to live in His presence. They wanted to live on their own it was the greatest statement of human self-dependence i don't need you all i have to do is take and eat of this tree and i'll be like you i'll be wise and what's amazing here is they were made like god they were made in his image but yet that wasn't enough The relationship they had with God, they were made to know Him, but this relationship was not one in which they were equal with God. Which is interesting when if we look at the devil himself and we see his own heart, what did he want to do? He wanted to be equal with God. And he's coming and tempting mankind with that same desire. Their rebellion was an act of treason against the presence of Almighty God. It was a violation of the gracious relationship God had with them. A casting aside of His presence. Living independent of Him. Wanting to live without Him. They didn't want to know His presence. And this is Is a direct rejection of the priestly role they were created for, to live in the presence of God. And so, what does God do? Remember, He told them, In the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. They said, We don't want to live in the presence of God, we want to be independent. So what did God do? He gave them what they wanted. And He removed His presence from them. It's interesting to see the, how this works out in Genesis chapter 3. Upon sinning, Adam and Eve intuitively knew that they could not stand in God's presence. We see this in Genesis 3.8. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So the presence of God is coming into the garden as it had done many times before. And instead of running to that presence, what do Adam and Eve do? Notice what is said in Genesis 3. They hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord God and it's i mean it's even amazing here among the trees of the garden the very thing that god had blessed them with they're now hiding from in them from god's presence and god calls to the man and said where are you and he said well i heard the sound of you in the garden which if you think about that the garden is the place of god's presence so That should have been expected to hear the sound of God in the garden. And instead of that being a gracious thing where he would run to God, instead Adam was what? Afraid. Because he was naked and he hid himself. It's interesting to note in Genesis chapter 3, 8 through 10 that it comes after Genesis 3, 7. I know I have these profound things to say sometimes. Genesis 3, 7 is how Adam and Eve are dealing with the reality that they now realize they're naked. They, They are ashamed because of their sin. And so what they seek to do is they make loincloths out of fig leaves or out of leaves. They sew them together. So... And this is something I had never noticed until this week, but Adam and Eve also intuitively knew that their efforts were not enough. Because if we look at what was said in Genesis 3 7, from a human perspective, they weren't naked. They had sewed fig leaves together, they were wearing loincloths, but they didn't, or they knew that it wasn't sufficient to stand in God's presence. And I'll tell you, there is a reality in the depths of the souls of mankind that we know that our best efforts aren't enough. Certainly not enough to stand before God Almighty. And so they hid themselves because they were naked. We're going to look in a few weeks at the garments of, and the manner in which the priests, the Levitical priests, were to wear these garments. And it's interesting that as they were to go up to the altar, there weren't to be steps up to the altar, because as they were to walk up to the altar, as they're, they're doing their work in the presence of God, there was the possibility that they could uncover their nakedness as they walked up those steps. And it's showing, again, this tie-in with hiding the results of sin before the Lord. So, put a pen in that. We, we, I told you to put a pen in one thing, we already dealt with it. Now put a pen in that, and we'll come back to that in several weeks. But I think it's also amazing to see here that Adam was fearful of God's presence. He feared the presence of the Lord, so much so that he sought to avoid the presence of God as best as he could. He was scared to come before the one who, in whose image he had been created. He had been created to spend eternity basking in the presence of God. And because of sin, he now feared the very thing he was created for. The immediate effect of sin was to, to was to destroy Adam's freedom to know God. And that destruction persists to this day. Mankind is not free in and of ourselves to know God. So as a result, God drives Adam from the garden the place where His presence is, and the blessings that His presence would bring. And He, he drives them into a sin-cursed world. Genesis 3, 22 through 24 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. He knows good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, And take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And what had God done to the ground? He cursed it. And so God drove out the man from the garden. And at the east of the garden, just a quick note, Where did the river flow out of the temple that Ezekiel spoke spoke of? What gate? The east gate. Where is the cherub with a flaming sword placed? At the east of the Garden of Eden. A sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, what do we take away from this for us today? Well, as we're going to build, the story of Scripture, in many ways, is the story of the reconciliation of mankind to the presence of God. Not fearfully coming before Him, but joyfully coming before Him. And so, we need... Our priesthood restored. And of course, there is one who restores that priesthood, and it is Christ Jesus, the one who we sang of in the songs before the service. And so we're going to see that develop throughout Scripture. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that when we choose sin, we are choosing to live independent of the presence of God. We are saying, like Adam and Eve, I don't need you. I can follow my own way. I can make it on my own strength, my own abilities. I can be my own God. And so it's a call for us a sobering call for us to turn away from sin and through Christ turn to the presence of our God. Next week, we'll pick up and we'll look at how this, how this issue now, mankind is driven from the presence of God, but God has made promises. Genesis 3.15, there will be someone who will come and reverse the curse. So how does mankind continue to relate with God, and that's where we begin to see the beginning, um, the beginning requirements and the beginning work of the priest. As we look at Cain and Abel, what was it that Cain and Abel brought? Sacrifices, and we'll begin to see that connection built up as we look at the the patriarchs. Let's pray, Father, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for. Um, how it so clearly speaks to us. Father, we thank You that You created us to know You, to spend eternity in Your presence. But Father, we also confess that our sins have driven us from Your presence. And so, Father, we give thanks that a new way has been opened through Jesus Christ, our great High Priest, So, Lord, may we seek as we walk before you through Christ to not make the mistakes of our first father and mother, but to relish your presence, to find dependence upon you a glorious thing, and to turn from sin and to you, not to turn from you and to sin. By your grace, work that in our hearts tonight. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood, amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.